Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. It was touch and go there for a moment about whether we would have a good martini, but we do, thanks to Jim. And uh, we also have Bad and Crazy, of course. Those are always less hard to find for some reason. Jim, I don't know if you've realized that too lately. But uh, uh, anyway, uh, Jim has an excellent morning jolt today. You should read the morning jolt every day. Today it's looking at kind of the uphill climb Republicans have to get that plus one in the U.S. Senate, given all the tight races they have to defend and uh, some of the challenges they have in going after the more vulnerable Democrats. So it's definitely worth your read. Uh, One of the seats that the Republicans have to hold is in Ohio. That's where Rob Portman is retiring after two terms. J.D. Vance is the Republican nominee. Tim Ryan, who ran for president for about five minutes back in 2020, but he's been a longtime Democratic congressman from eastern Ohio, is the Democratic nominee. Vance had to go through a very tough um, Republican primary. Ryan had token opposition if he had any at all and uh, so just before our vacations Jim there was some poll put out by a Democratic super PAC showing Ryan up double figures that had a lot of Republicans going what is happening in Ohio but once you looked at who did it and some of the numbers that the need to panic was certainly lessened but uh, now there's a new Emerson poll out and that shows J.D. Vance actually ahead Uh, it has him ahead of Tim Ryan 45 to 42 percent 4 percent plan to vote for someone else 10% are undecided. When you get to the very motivated, it's a one-point lead, so it's still a tough race. Governor Mike DeWine is ahead of his Democratic opponent by 16 points, so maybe he can tug Vance across the finish line, although they're not exactly ideological soulmates, even though uh, they're in the same party. Uh, For those concerned about the economy, it's a huge edge for J.D. Vance. For those concerned about abortion, it's a massive edge for Tim Ryan. But I got to think the economy is a bigger concern overall in Ohio and just about everywhere. So, uh, Jim, how serious should we take this poll and what does it say about the state of play right now? Well, there's a little bit of a backstory to uh, my corner post on today's uh, on this poll result. It actually went up before the morning jolt. Actually, you know, saw this uh, a couple of like, right before I left. I had written a corner post that had said, is it time for Republicans to start worrying about the Ohio Senate race? And I looked at pretty much all of the polling since May, and Ryan was ahead, anywhere from three points to 11 points. Uh, Most of these, we should point out, were not independent pollsters. Um, The Republican pollster that was in the mix was conducted by John Bolton's pack. And my colleague, Michael Brennan Doherty, thinks that this is just, you know, John Bolton, the ultimate interventionalist, whacking (laughs) around uh, J.D. Vance, the less interventionist or isolationist. But I looked at it, I was like, look, it's Ohio. It's a state that Trump won by eight points. It's supposed to be a good Republican year. You figure at some point, J.D. Vance would be leading a poll somewhere. And he really wasn't. And I heard from a bunch of Vance fans. Vance fans were not happy with me. Um, And there was a poll back in early or mid-May that had him up by three points. So it's like no poll had uh, put him up, but a whole bunch of polls were starting to stack up. Yes, some of them were commissioned by Tim Ryan. Um, But this, you know, that that struck me as a reason, okay, this is not a race that is locked up. And I think you can still say, looking today at the Emerson College result, this is not a race that is locked up. But I would much rather see, as a Republican, if I'm a Republican, I'd much rather see J.D. Vance up by three than down by three. You can breathe a little bit easier, I think, you know, adding to those circumstances, 
Um, Vance is a favorite for November, but not locked up. And I think what we, what we see here was a fairly predictable reaction to J.D. Vance winning a very contested primary and needing to spend a good chunk of the late spring and summer rebuilding his war chest, raising money, and uh, you know getting ready for the fall. Whereas Tim Ryan had the airwaves to himself, and my readers in Ohio were saying, Jim, I'm seeing Tim Ryan ads every time I turn on the television. It's almost like uh, uh, you know Mike can get it done during the Mike Bloomberg days. I haven't seen a J.D. Vance ad since the primary. This was a deliberate choice on the part of the J.D. Vance campaign, and we will see by November whether this was a good decision or a bad decision. I think the Emerson College uh, poll result indicates that this was not a fatal decision. But my thinking is, you think, you know, for those who have long memories, back in 1996, Bob Dole wins the primary, and he's almost out of funds, and he can't get the party's funds until he gets the nomination in late summer. And meanwhile, Bill Clinton, with no opposition, and uh, uh, you know, basically ran ads all late spring and summer long, so that by the time the election really, you know, tuned in by by fall, Dole had already been defined by like a ton of negative ads running coast to coast. My concern was that Vance was going to be a victim in a similar way. That by conceding the airwaves for a good three months, Tim Ryan was having an opportunity to define himself and to define J.D. Vance in the eyes of a lot of Ohioans. It looks like that has not shaken out this way. Now, as you point out, Mike DeWine leading by a ton uh, indicates that Vance is probably over underperforming what you'd expect a Republican to do in this state. He doesn't have it locked up. He should be okay. They're going to have debates. He's now up on the airwaves. This should be okay, but I don't think you can, you know, the JD Vance folks should be breaking out the party hats yet. Um, I think that this is, and also I just kind of like this nagging feeling. It's possible that polling is underestimating Republican support. We remember this happening in a couple of races in really large scale in 2020. But if you're a Republican campaign, I do not want you believing that you're 10 points ahead when the polls show you that you're five to 10 points behind. You should be running like you're five to 10 points behind. And I don't want Republican candidates to believe oh, it's a good year, or oh, our state usually votes for Republicans, and just count on that to carry them over the top. Um, still a lot of time for J.D. Vance to build momentum and all that stuff. It's good news. I don't buy into this idea put out by my colleague, Michael Brennan Doherty, that this is going to be a Tom Cotton 17-point route by the time it all comes out in November. It could shake out that way. But I look at those races, I see very big differences. He was running against Pryor, who was an incumbent, and Pryor was in like the low 30s to like the mid-40s. Uh, running for a third term. That's a bad spot if you're an incumbent. There is no incumbent in this race. So my the way I look at it is, you know, Vance is looking better, uh, but I would not uh, say this one is a stone-cold lock yet by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, of course, he's a first-time candidate on a big stage. He's got two months plus, really two and a half months to go here. And so you just got to hope that he's disciplined on message and and uh, quotes on the fly and things like that. Uh, it's easier to do once you've done it a few times, but uh, we will see about that. I think the, the number that is most optimistic for him is that one where he's up 50 points among those who care most about the economy. And as we're about to talk uh, in the second martini, uh, that's probably going to be an even bigger issue uh, than it is right now when we get to November. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now. And you know, we had the Inflation Reduction Act, and as we explained yesterday, the Democrats are no longer pretending it's going to reduce inflation. They're all giddy about their spending on their climate agenda and more IRS agents by the tens of thousands. And 
higher taxes on, quote unquote, the rich, which we're going to end up paying since corporate taxes always get passed along. But uh, inflation's still not going anywhere. And oh, by the way, interest rates are going to keep rising, too. That's what we are finding out. A couple different reports here. First, CNBC. Federal Reserve officials at their July meeting indicated they likely would not consider pulling back on interest rate hikes until inflation came down substantially, according to minutes uh, released from the session on Wednesday. During a meeting in which the central bank approved a three-quarters of a point percentage rate hike, uh, policymakers expressed resolve to bring down inflation that is running well above the Fed's desired 2% level. Over at the Financial Times, quote, given the enormity of the inflation problem and upside risks to the outlook for price growth, officials supported raising interest rate hikes again. And so the bottom line here is that rates are going up and inflation's not going anywhere for a while, even with the rate hikes, Jim. So um, if you've been saving and seeing nothing on the interest side for many years now, uh, that might be nice if you're looking to buy a house or take out a loan for any other reason. Not so nice. Uh, so where do we stand here and how do you think this impacts things short term and long term? Greg, while we were away, the inflation numbers for July came out. They were 8.5 percent. And I suppose it's how you look at it. When the previous month has been 9.1 percent, then, yeah, that's better. It indicates that maybe inflation peaked uh, back in, in June. Uh, but an 8.5% month, you know, year-over-year change is still a really bad number. It only looks good compared to the previous month. Joe Biden came out and said, look, we did zero, zero percent inflation. That's what we did. You know, that kind of whisper, shout, 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 whisper, whisper, whisper. Um, and I, I was struck by the sheer number of people who it's almost like they've been replaced with pod people who ordinarily would say, yeah, that, that's you know, the fact that it went down a little bit doesn't mean the inflation number is good, who were like mind-controlled zombies who were echoing this, well, inflation is now 0%. Oh, only if you're measuring by that measure to measure, year to year it's still bad. And it's not like prices are going down. You know, If you don't believe me, ask yourself, look at your, your receipts, look at how much you spent in groceries. Have gas prices come down? Yes, yes, they have. And that's good news, except it's mostly being re- uh, driven by a reduction in demand. Look at the survey numbers from the American Automobile Association. Americans recognize that $5 a gallon gas is really, really expensive, and they canceled those road trips, and they canceled driving around, and they're trying to do all their errands and fewer trips, and that's that's one of the you know, people are choosing to drive less. That is reducing demand. That is bringing prices down. That's not really the circumstances you want. You want prices to be going down. You want people to be able to drive as much as they need, but they obviously can still afford gas. That's not the circumstances we're in. The economic outlook is not as good as we think it is. And I point to Kiplingers. I point to a whole bunch of very respected economists who look at it and say, eh, it's going to be around 9% for the rest of the year. Now, I think 8.5% meets that definition of around 9%, which means when we get the numbers for August, at some point, you know, probably like September, some of that second week in September, it's probably going to be around 9%. We get the numbers for October. It's probably going to be around nine percent. We're probably going to have around nine percent for the from now until election day, and those numbers are going to be bad. And the idea that people say, "Oh, yeah, people feel like the economy is fixed," no, they're not. It, it's really kind of baffling to see how much you know Democrats are attempting to Jedi mind trick people into insisting the economy is doing well to get people to believe it. Well, they know how much they're spending week to week. They know how much they have in savings. They know how their four hundred one k is doing or, or, you know, bursting into flames the way at least the way mine has earlier this year. 
you know, like this, like the economy is what the economy is, and you really can't spin people too much about that sort of thing. There are other issues you can kind of get fuzzy and get them to believe one or two things, but you know, people know how they're doing economically. So I don't expect this to really work for the Democrats, and I still think our economic outlook for at least the remainder of the year, particularly on inflation, is going to be pretty challenging. Jim, you mentioned the Jedi mind trick that Biden tried to pull on the uh, July inflation numbers last week. Uh, Get ready for the other lie, which is going to be more complicated to fix, because inflation really started jumping around this time last year. For example, in August of 21, year over year, uh, inflation was up 5.3 percent. September, 5.4 percent. October, 6.2 percent. So now when we get to August, September, October of this year, compared to last year, it's still going to be up, but the year over year is going to be smaller than it was uh, from the bigger jumps, if that makes sense. So the Democrats are going to claim that inflation is being fixed, even though we're paying the same amount for gas and groceries and other uh, essential items. And the question is whether the Democratic spin machine is going to work when people are looking at the realities of their own checkbook. Yeah, there's been this like th- there's a very strange tone to a lot of economic coverage in the, in the last year or so. And a lot of it has been. By a lot of official measurements, the economy is doing quite well. Unemployment is low, and there are many unfilled jobs. So why are Americans so pessimistic about the? And then I'm like, do do you buy things? Do you go out shopping? Are you trying to make any big purchases? Have you tried to buy a car? Have you tried? You know, are you trying to buy a house? Are you trying to do any of these things? Because if you did, you'd understand why people don't feel great about it. And oh, by the way, all of these, you know, there are many unfilled jobs. Yeah, that's not a good thing, right. particularly if you've ever gone to a restaurant and you've waited 15 minutes for them to seat you because they don't have enough servers and they don't have enough waiters and things like that. There's a, you know, all kinds of businesses where you go in and as a consumer, you can just tell they don't have the staff they're supposed to, and that makes your experience less enjoyable. If you, supply chain issues, you're trying to, you know, apparently, you know, they're building houses and couldn't finish, you know, couldn't finish garage doors because of supply chain issues. People can tell the economy is not working the way it did before the pandemic. Still, you know, here we are, you know, coming on three years after it, and they still don't feel like their lives are back to normal. And that is one of the reasons there's this great dissatisfaction with the economy. Yeah, I saw this on my trip to the Midwest uh, over you know the last week and change. There was a pizza joint in Ohio that was offering begging, really, drivers $22 an hour, massive bonuses, hundreds and hundreds of dollars bonuses just to uh, to begin uh, delivering pizzas. And then there was a fast food restaurant in Maryland, $5,000 immediate bonus to become an assistant manager. I mean, the desperation to fill these jobs is intense. And right now, the government is providing very little incentive for people to go out there and want and get those jobs. It's it's really a problem. We're not as young as we used to be, Greg, but can you imagine being telling somebody, yeah, you can make $22 an hour delivering pizza? <laughs> right. And not I mean, taking back it. In minimum, back in my minimum wage days, it was like, what, $6.25 if I'm lucky? $5.25? Yeah. But yeah, I'm old, so never mind. All right. On to our crazy martini now, Jim. And... Um, one of the things that uh, you have written about extensively, especially as it related to former FBI director Jim Comey, is going from down the line, absolutely rock-ribbed honesty, to pretty much partisan pundit. Comey did that a lot after Trump fired him. And now we're kind of getting the same thing from former CIA director and former NSA chief Michael Hayden. He was one of those 50 people who, of course, uh, signed the letter saying that uh, reports of 
Hunter Biden's laptop containing all this uh, compromising information was Russian disinformation. They had no proof of that. It was just a few weeks before an election and they wanted Trump to lose. And so they all signed this thing. As we know now, it doesn't appear to be Russian disinformation. Now, yesterday, uh, a guy named Edward Luce, who I have to admit I hadn't heard of until yesterday, but he's an associate editor at the Financial Times. He tweets out, I've covered extremism and violent ideologies around the world over my career. Have never come across a political force more nihilistic, dangerous and contemptible than today's Republicans. Nothing close. So Hayden retweets this and says, I agree. And I was the CIA director. So he was a general in the Air Force. He ran the NSA. He ran the CIA. So Jim, he's got decades of time in uniform, which means he was there during the Cold War, in which communist countries slaughtered you know, dissidents by the tens of millions, probably 100 million total. He was also there during the height of the war on terrorism, where we've seen some of the most evil people on the planet. But it's Republicans in the United States, Jim, that are really the most appalling around the world. Unbelievable. Greg, this is uh, a whole bunch of Ds. <laughs> it's depressing. Uh, to use a politically charged and ironic word, I might say that it is deplorable. Uh, it is disappointing, uh, and I say this because you know I, I um, I've never run across Hayden, but I've talked to a couple of his former staffers uh, for a couple of articles. He, you know, he's the only man who's run both the National Security Agency and the Central Intelligence Agency, and he got very high marks as a manager. Um, I think you look at the performance of those agencies during that time; they were pretty darn. Uh, they, those were fairly good years. Um, I did not think of him as a frothing at the mouth left wing maniac during these times. He's been retired and he's, you know, in retirement, he's got every constitutional right as everybody else. And he's free to offer his thoughts on anything he does. But I think in addition to being disappointing, honestly, I think this is dangerous. And the reason I think this is that when you have a position of responsibility in charge of a big law enforcement or national security institution like uh, the NSA or CIA or thinking of Jim Comey, the FBI, we need those institutions to not only be nonpartisan, we need those institutions to be perceived as nonpartisan. And that means you must be purer than Caesar's wife. You must do things that avoid the appearance of a conflict of interest, not just avoid, not just not having that conflict of interest. And I think this applies to you after you leave office. Even if you're retired, even if you're getting up there in years and all that stuff, I don't think it's a good idea to have former directors of these, you know, really important, really powerful institutions that can legally spy on Americans, that can legally arrest people, that can legally kill people overseas. In fact, you think about that drone strike against the guy who absolutely had it coming, but that had, you know, set uh, Rand Paul's uh, anger afire. You know, we can you know, we have executed American citizens by drone strike because we've decided that they're a threat. I actually don't necessarily mind that, but I do think it opens up a very uh, slippery slope to once you decide, yeah, you know, we decided you're danger enough. We can kill you without a trial. Um, Michael Hayden, I, I would have liked to need, you know, I would say do better, but I clearly he doesn't care about this. But he's basically going down the Jim Comey path. And way back when Comey was writing his book and you know, like we've had other FBI directors, they've had political opinions. Generally, they've kept themselves, those opinions to themselves. Most people knew Louis Free at the FBI was not a fan of Bill Clinton. Um, you know, we, we've had other, other people where it's kind of been hinted or 
you read their books, you can kind of get a hint. And by the way, there's this perception that ah, people who are at high levels of these organizations, they're ah, they're they're, they're FBI, CIA, military. Uh, they must be right wing. No, not necessarily. Stanley McChrystal, uh, who was in charge of our operations in Afghanistan for a long stretch, was a uh, big M- M- big MSNBC watcher. It was not a surprise when he came out and became more outspoken political. I think these are bad things because we need these institutions to not be seen as a partisan football for one side or the other. And I see Hayden going down this path. And then back in 2018, one of my favorite articles in recent years is I talked to a whole bunch of retired FBI officials, uh, James Gagliano, who's now is he with Fox, he was CBS. He's been with everybody at one point or another, former retired FBI agent, terrific guy, um, very knowledgeable. And a bunch of other heads of former FBI and people, the kind of people who were able to speak on the record. And I was also very proud I didn't use any anonymous sources on this one. I just said, well, what do you think of Comey going on Stephen Colbert's couch and cracking jokes about how dumb Donald Trump is? And almost all of them are like, I don't like it. I don't like it. Even if they didn't like Trump, even if they have disagreements with Trump, they don't think it's a good idea because it makes the FBI appear to be a partisan institution. And look where we are here in 2022 with Peter Strzok and the Lovebirds and all these other cases where we've seen the FBI, people at high levels in the FBI have glaringly obvious strong political opinions who are then having to make decisions that involve political figures like Donald Trump, things like that. I think this is inherently bad and I don't think, I, I, I assume General Hayden has no idea how much he is harming the reputation of the CIA. By the way, I notice he doesn't mention he's NSA director. <laughs> <laughs> I forget, you know, um, but for whatever reason, like the idea of, oh, I've never seen anybody more dangerous than Republicans. If you're the former CIA director, you got to keep a thought like that to yourself. I, I can't control your thoughts, but doing putting that out there makes people see these government agencies as partisan uh, uh, action, partisan actors in our politics. It's a very bad step. And I wish he'd exercise better judgment. He hasn't. And I guess I guess even our you know even retired directors get to be, you know, um, get to be uh, talking head types now. I guess nobody feels any obligation to protect the reputation of the institutions they used to run. Yeah, I mean, the stuff he had to have seen in those positions compared to America's domestic politics is, you know, uh, imperfect as they obviously are, is is insane. So, Jim, I don't know if he'll listen to that. He should. Uh, if I could offer any pieces of advice, if he doesn't decide to take your overall advice, please don't take pictures of yourself walking through the woods and if anybody calls you out on this, don't, <laughs> don't, don't say, oh, gosh, gee, um, oh, gee willikers. You know, the, the old uh, Jim Comey way of, <laughs> I, I can't believe you would suggest such a thing. Uh, nobody misses Jim Comey. That's- yeah, and one of the things is, is that, you know, we, we've all kind of assumed that to rise to a position like director of the FBI um, or, or any comparable uh, head of a really important federal agency with important duties and responsibilities like that. Well, you must be a really sharp guy. And look, I don't think Comey's an idiot, but I do think Comey, like in these circumstances, the, 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 I guess maybe it's an issue of judgment, right? The idea that people are hanging on his every word. And what, what, what does he see in those trees? What is he looking at? It's like, uh, you know, it's, it's like a nature video. Look at, look at the bark pattern. You know, it's like, no, I, I just, just say what you got to say. I, you know, it, it, was, it was very weird. There, there, you could see the seduction of ego, the seduction of media, the seduction of being a star in politics. And I think if you enter law enforcement, this is really not a good, you know, you, this is not a place we want to see people jumping uh, from nonpartisan duties like that 
two very partisan roles in public life. But Comey's less less active than he used to be, and I think that's better for the country. But uh, who knows? Maybe Hayden has ambitions uh, to replace him. Yeah, it's amazing. As soon as he got political, how everybody on the left on social media thought Comey was offering nuggets of deep wisdom, and those of us who didn't. <laughs> You know, uh, agree with the left. Saw him as basically one step away from deep thoughts by Jack Handy, only not as funny. So uh, ah, you beat me to it. I was going to you know, <laughs> deep thoughts with Jim Comey. Is there really such a thing as jumbo shrimp? Oh, <laughs> uh, Saturday Night Live. It used to be funny. Check it out sometime. Uh, the archives. Uh, Jim, have a great day. See you later. Friday is coming. See you tomorrow, Greg. It is tomorrow. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast, please, if you don't already. Tell a friend about us as well. Thank you also very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Also, remember, you can get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday, and please join us again on Friday for the next 3 Martini Lunch. Clinton Cash author Peter Schweitzer joins me to explain how the rationale for the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago is far different than what Hillary Clinton did by keeping classified information on her private server. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, Schweitzer also explains how deep the Biden family ties go with China and how the Democrats' big spending bill is actually a huge win for Beijing. Don't miss it. Follow the Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.